0: The Old uh, Testament reading this morning is again from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I will go so far as to say it it may well form, in part, the sermon text. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace.
1: Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. These words by Shakespeare were given to Macbeth to say, bemoaning the seeming meaninglessness of life. But Shakespeare was not the first to bemoan this seeming meaninglessness to life 2500 years earlier in the bible the preacher the writer of ecclesiastes bemoaned the same thing but the preacher reached different conclusions than macbeth did okay we are in a study of ecclesiastes which began last week today we're looking at chapters 3 and 4 and here the preacher Based upon his inspired struggles, offers us practical aids to deal with the frustrations and the heartaches that sometimes make life seem meaningless. Scripture is quite good at presenting life the way it really is, not the way we sometimes wish it would be. Sometimes when I'm doing Bible studies, people come up and say, why is the Old Testament so violent? There's just violence, violence. I said, well, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age were violent times. (laughs) And the Bible is giving us an accurate and true presentation of what history really was. The great philosopher René Descartes, he wrote, most expositors tell how they would have created the world had God given them authority and power to do it. That is, they might describe chimeras, that have as much analogy with the imbecility of their wit as the admirable beauty of the universe has with the infinite puissance of its maker. The Bible tells us the way the world really is. Some systems of thought like Christian science try to explain away and deny that there's evil in the world. But God's word makes it clear. We live in a broken world. We find ourselves in a flawed universe. And although the pain and the suffering of this world are the result of our ancestor's sin and of our own sin, that outcome was not unforeseen by God. Did not catch him unawares. His sovereign plan always knew this would become a broken world. And he provides us help, aids, ways to live in this world we find ourselves in. Um, My friend Mike James and I met when we were three years old. We were in the backyard looking for insects that we could torture. And uh, um, we've remained friends for 70 years. He just passed away not, not, not too long long ago. But in our 20s, one time I was visiting him up in Minnesota. And he said, Dave, I've been so frustrated with life. One problem after another. I have a problem, and then another problem comes. And he said, then it dawned on me. That's what life is. <sighs> Life is a series of problems that we have to make it through. And Mike's insight has really helped me through the years as well. Um, It's part of the insight given in Ecclesiastes. It's part of what Ecclesiastes does for us. One of the greatest aspects of the book is that it faces up to the evil in the world. Even questions God about it in, in an honest way. But then comes to some profound conclusions on how we can live in this evil world we find ourselves in. Um, This is the Jewish commentary on the Koheles, the preacher, the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes is one of five Megillah scrolls. These were scrolls that were meant to be passed around from congregate, not just kept in a box back here, but passed around because they're practical and they're useful. And I think there's things in here that will help us in our lives even in the 20th century. So today we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4, which includes that beautiful uh, Old Testament reading that Bruce read earlier, uh, verses 3, 1 through 8. That's one of the most powerful passages, one of the most famous passages in all of literature. In a poetic way, it notes the polarities of life, and it contrasts them in seven pairs of couplets, which compare something evil or things we might not like with something that brings us joy and something that's good. And the passage assures us that the happy times and the mournful times are all part of God's plan. They all have meaning, and they help us see that we should temper the good times with the realization that bad times will come. And we should help ourselves get through the bad times by the realization that good times will come. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, which Bruce read, For everything there is a season and a time, for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to rip up what is planted. What could be more joyous than the birth of a child? But that joy is tempered by the realization that this baby will go through hard times in her life. She will suffer sickness, she will most likely be betrayed. She will have very difficult times of sorrow and weeping. And she will someday die. So how does this factor in to the joyous occasion of a birth? Well, here at Grace and Peace, when we baptize a baby, we acknowledge that this baby will go through hard times. And then we promise as a congregation, we're going to help her through it. We're going to teach her the word of God. We're going to be by her side all the way. And this is how a realization of the bad times makes the good times even deeper than if we just enjoyed the birth itself. It's the acknowledgement of the hardness that leads us to deep joy even in a broken world. The second part of that first couplet is the same, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, the cycle of life and death and i'm not going to go in detail over the other couplets they're just so they're just so beautiful a time to kill a time to heal a time to break down a time to build up a time to weep a time to laugh a time to mourn a time to dance a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep, a time to throw away. A time to tear, a time to sow. A time to keep silence, a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And then next, the writer of Ecclesiastes offers some reflections on these juxtaposition good and bad things that happen. And these polarities then lead him to some troubling questions. Questions that are the same that troubled Macbeth and the same that trouble us today. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 9. What gain then has the worker from his toil? The word gain here in the Hebrew and what gain has the worker is the Hebrew yitron. It's not used in any other book of the Bible except Ecclesiastes and it's used eight times in Ecclesiastes. Various translators have translated it as what gain, what value, what advantage, what profit, what excellency. In other words, is there any inherent purpose, any inherent significance to this cycle of good and bad in our grief-stricken lives? When I was in college, There was a young couple joined our church and became Christians. They had two beautiful little girls. And shortly after they became Christians, they decided God was calling them to full-time Christian work. Our church raised money. We had a fundraiser. They were going to send them off to seminary. The day before they were to leave, they were traveling down Buncombe Road in Fairview Heights. And a drunk driver crossed over, hit them head-on, killed the entire family a couple and their little girls. Next day I was tutoring a college student in our church in calculus and I sat down with him and Phil said to me, Dave doesn't the death of the gedekers make you doubt that there's a God? I mean it's just so meaningless and senseless. I said well sure Phil, I mean my faith is really challenged here. I mean it, it I'm mad at God. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's this horrible. But Phil, I keep coming back to this one thing. If there is no God, then their death is undoubtedly meaningless and useless and has no purpose, as is all of life. But if there is a God, then I can hold to the hope That God's in control and there's a purpose. I don't know the purpose, but I can hold to the hope that there is one. And Phil, that's the only thing that can get me through a senseless time like this. Is that God might be in control. And the preacher is about to tell us the same thing. He's about to tell us that even though life appears as an endless cycle of good and bad, This does not mean that God is not in control. Let's continue. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out all that God has done from the beginning to the end. The preacher notes that as an indication of God's overall control of the universe, he's given us things that are beautiful, things we can look at and see him there. It's a gift to us to plate this beauty here. There's sunsets and full moons, there's waterfalls and volcanoes There's humpback whales and hummingbirds, monarch butterflies and cuttlefish, supernovas, spiral galaxies, all beautiful. And any of these can fill us with awe for the glory of God. Sarah Teasdale expressed it really well in her great poem, Barter. Life has loveliness to sell. All beautiful and splendid things. Blue waves whitened on a cliff. Soaring fire that sways and swings and children's faces looking up, holding wonder in a cup. Life has loveliness to sell, music like a curve of gold, scent of pine trees in the rain, eyes that love you, arms that hold. And for your spirits still delight, silent holy thoughts that star the night. Spend all you have for loveliness. Buy it and never count the cost. For one white singing hour of peace count many a year of strife well lost. And for a breath of ecstasy give all you have be, have been or could be. Of course, we don't have to buy loveliness. God gives it to us. But what Sarah Teasdale is saying is we have to make a choice to take it. We have to make a choice. Are we going to concentrate and ruminate on the bad times of life? Or are we going to make a choice to look at the beauty that God has put here for us? Philippians 4, 18 and 19. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever if there be any things of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have heard and learned and received and seen in me, and the God of peace shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. God's given us beautiful things in the world to look on, to give us hope, To get us through the bad times. And the preacher is telling this is one way. We can get through it. The preacher gives us another way. He says, and God has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, God has given us an inner sense that this present physical world is not all that exists (laughs) he's put into our spirits the idea that there is an eternity something outside of time and space and this is something that can give us hope but God's also made it so we can't find out everything about it (laughs) right he has purposely made it so we cannot figure it all out but so we can know that it's there Uh, the famous physicist Richard Feynman once said I think it is safe to say that no one understands quantum mechanics. <laughs> but yet, God has allowed us to write equations that predict quantum mechanics. We can do computations based on it. We can design cell phones based upon it. But without understanding what it's about. <laughs> God's given us the ability to latch on to the fact that Jesus could be God and man at the same time. Now, if If we can't figure out how an atom, how an electron could be a particle and a wave at the same time, how do we expect we can figure out that how Jesus could be God and man at the same time? But God's given us the ability to hold that fact as a mystery and to have it help our lives and to use it in our lives, even though we don't understand it. And eternity is the same way. God's given us the ability to see this four-dimensional space-time continuum is not everything even though we can't possibly imagine what's outside of it. But we can hold on to that, and the preacher says, this gets us through the hard times. And this leads the preacher to an amazing conclusion. Ecclesiastes 3, 12-15. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful... And to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. I perceive that whenever God, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what he pursues. Now, God seeks what he pursues is the translation from the Jewish Publication Society, not from the ESV, in case you're, you're reading along. God seeks what he The beauty of the creation allows us to appreciate the power of God and to enjoy it. And the concept of eternity in our hearts allows us to accept by faith that God has a plan, And he's in control, and he's pursuing us personally, even though we can't possibly imagine why God would want to pursue us. Well, now, the realization that God's in control, however, that brings the preacher to two more troubling polarities of life. And the first is Ecclesiastes 3, 16 and 17. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, that is the court system, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So the preacher is saddened that even in the court system and in the religious system, where you might think there the playing field is level, there we made things right, no, even there, There's evil and there's bribes and things don't happen right. But yet, since God's put eternity into the preacher's mind, he can say, but wait a minute, this isn't the only reality. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for everything. The very cycle of joy and pain in this life helps us to see there is joy that will come after pain in the life to come. Of course, we agonize and we say, Lord, how long do we have to wait? We want justice now. But even in that plea, Lord, how long do we have to wait? We're acknowledging that there is justice that will come. We just are anxious for it. We want it to come now. Um, There's there's a story told that a missionary couple was returning from Africa in 1909. They spent 30 years on the mission field there in Africa, and as their ship pulled into New York Harbor. They saw American flags. There were bands, huge crowds, reporters with flashbulbs. And the husband said to his wife, look at that. What a welcome they're giving us, coming home from Africa. Well, it turns out the welcome was not for them. Teddy Roosevelt was returning on the same ship from a safari in Africa. And the crowds were all for him. And that night in their tiny hotel bed, the husband was feeling very despondent and he says how is it that roosevelt goes to kill rhinoceroses and elephants and he comes back to a big crowd and we go spend 30 years of our lives helping people and we come back there's no one to welcome us home and his wife turned to him and said honey we're not home yet (laughs) And that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us going in this world. We're not home yet. The final justice has not been done, but it will be done. And then the second, the second sort of polarity that the preacher, this view of life is, is the difference between man and animals. And this is bugging him too. Ecclesiastes 3, 18 to 20, 21. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see they are themselves only animals for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same as one dies so dies the other they all have the same breath and man has no advantage over beasts for all his vanity all go to one place all are from the dust and to dust all return who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward to and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Well, it sort of seems like the preacher is spouting heresy here, saying we don't have a spirit that goes to heaven when we die. And some people have said this should not be in the Bible. They, Some people, it was, this was one of the toughest books. But it's amazing to me, the Jewish canon and the Christian canon are the same. <laughs> both groups have agreed. Isn't that amazing? And they will both agree on coalesce, that it's there. Because scripture is giving us a faithful account of the preacher's thoughts, a faithful account of his struggles. These are his real struggles, the things that are really going through his mind. Okay? He, now, there was a theory at the time that Coleth was written. Well, one of the theories was that the spirit of animals, when they die, goes down into the underworld, into Sheol. And the spirit of humans, when they die, goes up to be with God. That, that was the theory. Koala's not seeing it. <laughs> he says, "How do they know that? How can anybody possibly know that? It looks to me like they're all the same. You know, they, we can see animals have emotions and they love their children and they they die. We both rot away. How can there be any way? Well, how could we know if there's any way? We read today in the go- in the gospel re- reading, Jesus said, "I came down from the Father." And I can tell you, if you believe in me, you're going to go and be with the Father with me. Jesus claimed to know. When they asked him about marriage, he said, oh, there's not marriage in heaven. We're like the angels. Who would know that? Only someone who had been there. So today we have a perspective, right? We we could look at this and say, no, we know our spirit. We don't know about whether animals go up or down. I'm not getting into today. Okay, so... <laughs> whether well, there's a heaven for dogs, but we know Jesus told us that we have an eternal home with him and with the Father. Well, the preacher did not have this, but he did have something. He was able to say, I don't know. I don't believe these theories. You know, I can't believe, I just don't know. And so what he says is Ecclesiastes 3.22. So I saw there is nothing better Than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, he's saying, since I don't know what's coming after, and I'm not positive, I'm going to make the best of the life I'm living here now. I'm going to be the best person I can be. I'm going to love God. I'm going to enjoy the beauty that's here. And I'm going to try to make this work. So sort of as a summary of what the preacher has come to to help us live through the bro- broken world. He first appreciates that life is a poetic interaction between the good and the bad. Once we figure out, like Mike James, that there's both there, we're in better shape. Number two, he knows God is in control. Okay, He's put in eternity into our minds and beauty into the world so that we can see this control even though we don't understand it. Three, justice may not be done here on earth the wicked prosper the psalmist said but there is a final judge and God will judge and fourth make the most of the life that we've been given I had a great friend Dr. Manning who was a professor of hermeneutics at Golden Gate Theological Seminary and he was Dutch Reformed in his background one day he was just driving down the road in California when he saw a farmer plowing and he pulled off his car Went over and flagged the farmer down. And he said, if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do? The farmer said, I'd finish plowing this field. <laughs> and Dr. Manning said, can I plow a row? <laughs> he said, yeah, you can. He got off and let Dr. Manning on, and he was from the farm and he plowed that row. He knew that whatever we do is a worship to God. That's what the preacher said. I know this life God has given us right is something a gift from him that we should do it to the best of our ability we should do it as an act of worship as an act of praise to god this is the message now i'm not going to do chapter four but just tell you what's in it and give you a little brief brief outline uh, later on if you want to look look at that chapter four has some corollaries based on this worldview the view that we live in a broken world but god's in control and there's some helpful hints on relationships. So the first one in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4 is the relationship between the oppressor and the oppressed. And he has some insights about that. Um, again, if only he had known that Jesus would be the ultimate one to release those who are oppressed. Verses 4 through 6 is about the relationship between neighbors. And he talks about you know, to, you work hard just so you can make a lot of money and impress your neighbors. You'd be better off to be a fool that didn't work at all, I mean, right? You'd better off to be a lazy guy just to work to impress your, na- 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 your neighbors. You know, there's nobody on their deathbed says, oh, I wish I'd have worked more overtime, right? That just, that doesn't happen. At that point, we realize, wow. You know, so he talks about we should be generous. The third one he talks about, Okay, is about lack of lack of relationships. How sad it is we don't have build relationships with anyone, and how important that is for us. And then the fourth one is that how to do that, how to build those relationships. And his last point, sort of a corollary to chapter three, is it sounds like it's about kings, but it's deeper. It said, you know, there was a poor guy in the dungeon, and he rose to became king. He ended well. And there was a great king but when he got old he wouldn't take advice anymore and he ruined his kingdom and he went down and really the point is we should end well right especially people of my of my age right we're thinking about our life are we going to end well are we going to keep seeing the beauty in life keep giving things back to the lord as a young man an older man had lunch with me one day and he said dave I want to tell, tell you something. I see growing old as giving things back to God. You give back your hearing. <laughs> you give back your eyesight. His wife had just passed away. He said, you give back your spouse. And then ultimately, you give back your own life to God. This is the process. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm trying to glorify God in it. And I kept that advice with me. And so Ecclesiastes, the preacher, tells us we can make it through, but we need community. That's part of that chapter four. We need relationship. We need community. We need people to help each other. This is the word of the preacher on how to cope in a broken world.